Well, if you would, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that we can gather as your people. Father, we are thankful that you are God who hears the prayers of your people. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us in your word, Lord, that your word declares to us that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. Father, we just thank you for what you have done for us in your atoning sacrifice. We thank you for just bringing us together. We pray that we would rejoice in the hearing and teaching of your word. Father, we just pray that you would give us a humble and yet bold Lord, declaration of your truth to a lost and dying world. Pray that we would be salt and light out into the world. Father, I just pray for Chris that you would empower him with your word and that we would have a proper reflection and be attentive, Lord, and like the Bereans, not just hear your word, but be doers of your word. Father, I just pray that we would be reminded day in and day out of your truth. And Lord, just thank you for your saving grace. Lord, thank you and help us, Lord, to have a greater love, not only for you, but for one another and extend grace to one another. Father, we just thank you for this time. Lord, help us. And we ask these things in your son's name, Christ. Amen. Well, just a brief uh, recap that we looked at last week. We went over what I would call some traditional methods versus what I would call some more of the biblical methods. We kind of looked at some contrasting ideas uh, and how they relate to uh, biblical ideas. And so this week, we're going to be looking at a couple, a few different subjects, one of which I believe is very important and is going to take a good deal of our time. Uh, for which we didn't get to last week, and that is internal apologetics. And I'll go over more than that here in just a minute. And then we're also going to be looking at the effects of gospel apologetics. And then we'll be really kind of taking a journey with Paul and going through the book of Acts and seeing how did he address the people? Who were the people? How did he address them? What was his attitude in that? Um, and then I just kind of I'll re kind of cap what we looked at in week one, kind of going over lifestyle uh, apologetics as a lifestyle. We're going to be looking at that it's not that it um, is an action and not an office of the church, um, and really the attitude of the one engaged in apologetics. And so I want to start us off by really quoting from Charles Spurgeon because I believe he just sets a tone for what I think is a very important topic, but neglected topic, and that is internal apologetics. So here's this quote from Spurgeon. He says, I would not give a penny for your love to the truth if it is not accompanied with a hearty hatred of error. Now, sometimes we don't think of that as very loving. I mean, we just think, man, we're supposed to have a hatred for error. And I believe so. I believe if we have a love for truth and God's truth, it would necessitate that we have a hatred for what is error, what is false teaching. And so I want to start us off by looking at what is internal apologetics. Internal apologetics is the deliberate call of the church and church leaders in particular to safeguard biblical doctrine within the confines of the professing church. 
Now, external apologetics is defending and advancing biblical truth in the world to unbelievers. We need to defend the faith and guard biblical truth just as much on the inside as we do on the outside, and I would say even perhaps more. Another quote from John MacArthur. He states, quote, Your church's greatest enemy isn't government. It's not the culture. It's not Hollywood producers or liberal media. Scripture states and history confirms that churches are strengthened under persecution and adversity. If our churches are to be destroyed or rendered ineffective and stagnant, that will happen at the hands of our own people. End quote. And I would say that Jesus and the apostles forewarned future generations by practice and by precept that basic to the church shepherd's task would be the work of apologetics within their own ranks, defending the faith among the professing faithful. And so we all know, we looked at earlier first week, we looked at 1 Peter 3.15, and we know it's a verse about apologetics. And I would say, however, it's not the only one, but yet it is among many. So now I want to look at, if you would turn with me in your Bible, to Acts 20. Now we're going to be going through Acts 20 pretty quickly, specifically Acts 20, and we're going to start really in Acts 20, um, verse 20, and kind of uh, going forward. Just a second to turn there. First of all, Acts 20 is clearly apologetic in nature. It is both defensive and protective. Paul commands the elders to be on guard. This we can see in Acts 20, 28. And then, it's re- and then he says again in Acts 20, verse 31, to literally be on the alert and to admonish or warn. This is in the same verse as verse 31. And so it is the elders or pastors of the church are called to carry out apologetics as a life's calling. They are literally God's overseers. And we see this in verse 20, 28. And they are to protect, to defend, and watch out for and guard on God's behalf. And so now I want us to look at who are the beneficiaries of apologetics within the church. And so a point to consider is actually what it is the elders guard. We're told that they guard something. So what is it that they guard? And so they are to guard the sheep, the people of God. They are to be on guard for the flock. If you read again, 2028, it says, for the flock. And then it says, which Christ purchased with his own blood. This is again in Acts 2028. And so apologetics, in my opinion, is gospel-oriented and gospel-driven. And in Acts 20, we also see religious people are the target group for internal apologetics. And it's not merely just to the unchurched, atheist, or agnostic. Paul calls the elders to protect the sheep from, and if you go the next verse later, Acts 20, 29, from savage wolves. And he says savage wolves are false religious teachers, and they are typified by speaking perverse things, seeking to make disciples 
after them. Again, if you're following, and, and again, that's repeated in verse 30. And he says, They masquerade as Christians and Bible teachers and profess to believe in Jesus. And this is why Jesus gave the apologetic call when he warned, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is uh, said for us in Matthew 7, 15. And so going forward, Paul continues to warn that after his departure, savage wolves will come in among you. And then he says again in 29, verse 29, not sparing the flock. And so I would say the most dangerous enemies of Christ will be within the church. And we see this when Paul literally names him. He says, Hymenaeus and Philetus were two such churchmen who spread their false teaching like gangrene, and they literally upset the faith. And so apologetics must begin in the church. Modern-day Christian apologetics has all forgotten to guard against, I would say, heretics on the inside. And Paul continues to stress this point when he writes, and from among your own selves, men will arise. And he says this, and I believe this is a first-order responsibility of true church leadership. And within our own church, I'm very thankful that we have leaders that are doing just that. They are guarding what the faith, and they are guarding it on our behalf, and I'm very thankful for them. If you ever get a chance, I mean, thank your leaders for that, because they are help protecting you against false error. And Paul wrote virtually all of his 13 epistles to counter false teaching that was going on inside the church. And so now I want us to direct your attention to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is next to the last um, book in the Bible, just before the book of Revelation. The book of Jude is just one chapter, so we're going to be looking at Jude verses 3 and 4. Normally people don't use this text in the task of apologetics, but I think it is very important, and I'll read it. Jude Verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so here in this text, we here we have the very important principles to consider. And that it is one, it is a command for who? Well, he starts off for the who? Beloved. If you're a Christian, you're part of this beloved. And so that is who Jude, I believe, is directing his attention to all Christians. And so I would say it begins in the church. And it is a warning, we read in this text, it's a warning against the ungodly in the church. And the faith is what we defend in apologetics. And to contend earnestly for the faith, if you go to the Greek word, it literally would mean to agonize in our fights. 
And if you, again, if you're of the beloved, this verse, I believe, is for you. And so I believe this verse also continues in the same step as what Acts 20 does. And so now I kind of want to look again in looking at internal apologetics is looking at the life of Jesus. Well, Go ahead. Something real quick that's really interesting with that verse in Jude mm-hmm. is, I mean, how, how important the way he's writing that sentence, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Mm-hmm. So as if there's, I mean, what's more important to write about than our common salvation? But he actually says this is more important right now than just writing about our common salvation mm-hmm. to defend the you know, the defense of the faith. And he's saying that that's, you know, although I was eager to write about something of such great importance, our common salvation, he's saying that's even more important right now is to deal with that part, that you need to contend for that. Yeah, I think that's what he's writing to them because, again, there are people coming in giving a false gospel. And so it's kind of like you need to kind of redirect your attention, and I think that's what he's doing here. He says, I was eager to write to you about our conversation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. And I think sometimes we go to church and we just assume, you know, that they're teaching true doctrine. Well, I think we need to be more like the Bereans and hear what he's saying you know, and then it's incumbent upon every individual Christian that would call themselves of the beloved uh, for them to say, hey, is this guy teaching correctly? Is it from God's truth? And then those who are in church leadership should, you know, be on guard for their people. That's what they're entrusted to do. And I'd say if they're not doing it, they're failing. Um, And so in looking at the life of Jesus, he made a priority of internal apologetics. His defensive apologetic work was done within his own ranks, in-house, and he was combating the false teaching of the Jewish leaders. His entire three-year public ministry of teaching, preaching, proclaiming, and defending the faith was virtually all internal, and it was reserved for the religious monotheistic Jewish Old Testament community. Jesus illustrates this for us in, and I believe in, I'm going to have you uh, go the next book over, Revelations, uh, Revelation 2, verse 2. And then we're going to be looking kind of real quickly at Revelation 2, 6. Revelation 2, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Notice here is a command. They were to be tested to see if they were teaching true biblical truth. And so if you go a few verses later in verse 6 again he says yet this you have you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, notice what he's saying that he hates. He hates the works. He's not necessarily saying he hates the people or that we're to hate the people. Rather, he's saying he hates the works because these works are demonstrating a false gospel. And then we are to confront and expose false teaching. And one of the most scathing rebukes that Christ gave was to the church. And he did this at Thyatira for tolerating false teaching. If you would flip over to, again to Revelation 2, verses 22 and 23. And I'll read this. Behold, 
I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. And so from this, from these examples, I would say it is evident that Jesus expected believers to defend the faith beginning on the inside. And I want to add this. If it is weak on the inside, if our defense of the gospel is weak on the inside, how can we expect to be strong and faithful to the outside world? I mean, I don't. we need to start in our own house and, and be prepared that way. I'd say it is vital to remember that there are there is no higher authority than Scripture, for it reveals the very mind of God, and for even Satan tried to tempt Christ by the Scriptures. And so before we kind of look at some questions, do some quick Q&A, I want to just state this. Logically, internal apologetics is a prerequisite for effective external apologetics. By external, I mean outside of the church. Being that Christians first need to be equipped properly with biblical doctrine, a biblical methodology before they can successfully engage the unbelieving world in defending and advancing the gospel of Christ. So we've kind of looked at internal apologetics. And so before we get into um, kind of the effects of apologetics and Paul's defense, uh, I want to just kind of start us off by some questions. And that is, what has been your criteria in determining how effective someone is in the field of apologetics? And that is, why do you believe they're effective? What are some examples? Go ahead, John. Well, I, I like, I, a lot of people here listen to James White. I think his apologetic is effective simply because he's biblical first. Mm-hmm. And I think he derives his apologetic method and his theology will come from the text of the Bible instead of imposing his philosophical understanding on the text of the Bible first. He's going to look at what the Bible has to say, and then he's going to, he's going to pronounce from there. I actually like that because I think it's a little bit more effective than having something already predetermined in your head that you're coming to a little framework. Mm-hmm. And that I like it. Uh, William Lane Craig, and, and he's a great guy, and he's a great apologist, but I think that is a, a lesser system. And, and I think if you start with the word and end with the word, you'll be better than if you start with a, a philosophical system. So by that, do you think it would be easier, let's say for the average Joe Christian like me, to say duplicate or kind of see rather than a William Lane Craig where it's not as near as philosophical and I don't have to remember all these nuances of the different terms I think I think for a true biblical Christian Mm -hmm. the biblical apologetic that you're presenting and that you know uh, Bonson and Van Til and those guys that they follow um, uh, is is a lot better and easier to follow than a lot of professing Christians want to follow, and there are two Christians that follow it too, who follow the more evidential path where mm-hmm. you're trying to prove a God and then move down these steps. Right. That, that seems logical and it seems good and powerful, but it leaves you in a position where you're really not proving anything except for what you've already determined in your own mind, and that, I think that's just an error that people fall into. Yeah, what, I like what you said with um, 
with Dr. White is that I think he re directs you back to the scriptures rather than like his particular method or whatever. That, and I think all of us can be encouraged by just go buying back to the scriptures. Oh, and I don't have to memorize what did this super smart guy say. And maybe I'm, and I think what happens is people think that they really make apologetics too hard and that they get in this fear zone that I can't do it because I'm not near as smart as this guy. But if someone like Dr. White redirects us back to the Bible, well, I know how to read. So then I can go and say, hey, this is what Jesus says. So I can just get it out there because that, and again, I believe that Jesus transforms people with his very word rather than an endless debate. <laughs> um, so with that, another question is, how have you answered the statement? And it's been, I'm sure, posed to you. What's true is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And with that, what about when they use certain verses? You know, and they say, and let's say you give them a verse out of the Bible. And they say, well, that's, that's your understanding of it. But my understanding of it is, you know, is this. And therefore, I, I can actually make it up as I go along. How do, how do you think we should answer people like that? Go ahead. I do use logic with that when it comes okay. to that. I ask them if they believe that two is plus two is four. Okay. Not being stupid, but sure. being honest. And they mm -hmm. say yes. And I say, well, if I say it's five, am I, am I wrong or am I right? And they usually say, well, it's four. And I say, so there is an absolute truth. Sure. And you're okay with that. And, you know, just kind of appealing back to them having to rethink their way of thinking for a second. Because people will usually acknowledge truth there. Mm -hmm. and so, Certainly. Well, if there is absolute truth, there is absolute truth. So what does this really mean okay. when you're appealing to the scriptures? You know, it's not just you take it your way, I take it my way. He has an intention. Sure. Two plus two to him really is four. It's just which is the right four. <laughs> right. Sure. One thing I like to use in helping people do that in which they typically will affirm is that I will call what's the kind of the 2020 rule. And when, if I'm going to a specific text, right, and I want to make my appeal or my position on one text, and they say, well, that text doesn't mean that, right? So what I may say is, okay, well, let's look at not only this specific text, but looks, let us look at the 20 verses before it. Who is the audience this person is addressing? Why are they addressing this very point? And then not only on that text, let's look at the 20 verses after so that we have kind of a broader view of what's being, uh, let, let us, would you agree that we can discover this together rather than try and isolate one text from the rest of it? Let's look at it together. Uh, I think if you do that, a lot of people will be more willing to, you know, because then it's not, because what happens, especially in debates within apologetics, you know, people have their pet verses. I know I do. And so what happens is this guy you're, you're talking to, so let's say a Church of Christ guy, he says, well, I got Acts 2.38. And you say, I got Ephesians 2.9. And then you're playing like, you know, theological, you know, ping pong. And rather, so how do you answer that when they say, well, I got this text. This proves my point. How I might start it and say, man, I love that verse. And then they're kind of like thrown off of their defensive mechanism. You know, it's like, well, you're a, you know, you're not supposed to love that verse, you know. And so what happens is you say, hey, I love all of Scripture because I believe all of it is profitable. And it doesn't contradict one verses after another. So I think it's important to look at them all together. Um, I think most people would say, okay. 
and then you get them to maybe open their eyes a little bit more. Go ahead. But have, it's, it's been my experience, and I don't know. Have you found that people actually want to do the 2020 rule? I found that when I when I do that, people they don't want to go because you'll start talking about okay, look, let's look at this. Okay, this pronoun relates to this and this and this. Mm -hmm. and they're like, ah, forget that and move on to another verse. So, have you found that people do that, or you that you get them to actually go with it? I, I think it depends on the person and or group. Um, <laughs> You know, because of time, you're not able to always go with the 20 verses before, 20 verses after. Um, but I think you can kind of look at maybe just a few verses and maybe ask them some open-ended questions. Um, who do you think this verse is to? Why do you think there's, you know, addressing this particular people group? Um, and if you start asking questions like that, I think it might get them, even if they don't do it at the time that you're speaking to them, what happens is they may be like, ah, this guy, you know, I'm not going to admit it in front of him, but maybe I'll go home and look at what he was talking about. Because, you know, there's sometimes, and again, my own life, there's going to be pride that rises up, and I don't want to look stupid in front of him. I might do it at home. <laughs> so, um, now, that, along with that is why do you suppose people see confronting error as unloving. I remember real quickly, Amelia and I were just talking, we we're having coffee, um, a Muslim lady is overhearing us, you know, and we're kind of just addressing her, you know, I think it's caring and loving, we didn't get up, she's kind of standing over us, but she just keeps repeating, you just need to love people, just love, it's all about love, it's all about love. And I just kind of you know, to me, so I asked her, well, what's more loving than to declare to you the truth, the truthfulness of Christ? She just repeated, well, what about love? So I guess that's what do you think people see is when we address error, that it's just Matthew 17, 7, 1, don't judge me. You know, why do you suppose that is? Well, I, I, think, I think in, in today's culture where there is no truth, it's relativistic, we're in a postmodern world, we know everything is right, which is interesting in itself, but people think that if you say to somebody you're wrong, that that, that means that you're being unloving. You're not letting them express their own opinions. You're shutting them down. You're talking about them, and, and you're not doing anything. All you're mm -hmm. doing is saying that particular thought that you had does not line up with the truth. Mm -hmm. And to, to just to say that something is not, not correct is not unloving to me. I agree with you. To, to, to correct somebody's false perception is the most loving thing you can do because I'd rather walk around in truth and have it hurt for a second than to be walking around in blissful ignorance mm -hmm. for my whole life and then have it hurt for eternity. So that's just how I think about it. Go ahead. I think they don't uh, want to think that way because they don't understand the nature of Christ. I mean, that's I think what a lot of it comes down to. Mm -hmm. is they don't understand his true character sure. and his intolerance of, of sin wrong is truly is just that there is judgment and such you know and I mean I like to I guess Christ spoke in paradise or uh, parables a lot mm -hmm. you know an example is if, if you have your son or you know a loved one standing in the road not looking they see a bus coming are you going to tell them they're standing in the right place or are you going to push them out of the way and do everything you can right, to sure. they're in the wrong place I mean mm -hmm. sometimes you can you can love people all the way to hell if you're never going to tell them the truth right to me, I also think it can it can be an, an attitude problem. I can reveal to them every biblical doctrine and be 100% right and truthful with them. 
and yet if I do it in an attitude that's not reflective of the love of Christ, you know, they're probably not going to hear it because what they're hearing really is my attitude rather than what I'm saying. So I think it's, again, very important that we reflect not only what Jesus said, but his, but his attitude in doing it. Uh, because we have been shown a tremendous amount of mercy and grace, we ought to remember that when uh, we're telling someone the truth. You know, and I, so go ahead. I think the reality, though, is sometimes no matter how kindly you say, sure, <laughs> people want to hear they're going to say you're being judgmental, you're being a jerk. Sure. Well, I mean, you tell anybody they can't have the cookie out of the cookie jar, they're not going to like you no matter how kindly you say it. I, I firmly agree. <laughs> Um, and that's why we just got to keep on. So when, like this lady who just kept repeating, you know, love, I mean, I, I wouldn't know how to do it any differently, you know, other than change what I was saying, which I wasn't going to do. You know, I was trying to demonstrate to her or even asking, well, what is love? You know, where do we derive love? Um, and so that being said, how then, how should we respond when asking about a person's faith? Let's say I say, you know, I'm out on the street engaged in apologetics or evangelism, and I ask him, hey, how do you think someone becomes a Christian? Or how did someone become born again and go to heaven? And then they respond with, well, I'm Methodist, I'm Baptist, I'm Pentecostal, whatever denominational name it is. How do you think we should respond? Because I know typically if we hear like, I'm Baptist, oh, well, then you must know the truth. (laughs) <laughs> or whatever it is. No, so no matter what term it is, how do you think we ought to respond? I think you should go back to Scripture and make sure that, you know, because a lot of people claim to be Christians. I've talked to Certainly. a lot of people, and then when you say, well, what's that mean? You know, how did you become a Christian? Like, mm-hmm. well, I grew up in the church. So it's like, well, I grew up in, you know, I got in the garage every day and didn't make any cars. But, right. You know, and so if you can go back and see if they really understand what the Scripture says about one thing I've asked people when they repeat, again, a, a denominational name. Let's say this, well, I'm Baptist. I say, well, okay, well, how does a Baptist get to heaven? <laughs> what I'm asking specifically is how they believe one gets to heaven. And then I say, I mean, could Baptist be wrong? Could a Methodist be wrong? Could so-and-so be wrong? Well, and then we say, well, this is just what I was gro- grew up learning. Okay, well, does that conform with Scripture? It may or may not, and they may have... The, this particular group may have a solid answer. They may say, you know what, I'm a superlapsarian Calvinist. And we'd go, well, you're in. Well, then I would still ask the same question. Amen. What is that? How does one of those people get to heaven? Right? What do they believe? Because they may say, well, I don't, I don't know technically what they believe, but I know I'm one of them. Well, to me, that doesn't make any sense. So I just ask them, how does that particular person or group, how are they supposed to get to heaven? And then... Sometimes what they tell you, though, is they respond by telling you what they don't believe. And so I try and direct the attention back to what they do believe. You know, I've asked atheists, what do you believe? Typically, the response is what they don't believe. I don't believe in this fairy god, you know, guy in this closet. I say, well, I wasn't asking you what you don't, but what do you believe? Uh, So it gets them to really tell you. And then that way you can address what they believe uh, and see if it, again, corresponds to truth. Uh, And then in line with that, and then we'll quickly uh, look at Paul's defense. When asking about doctrinal matters, let's say, specifically within orthodoxy, like, let's say I would claim to be a Trinitarian, 
how would you respond if they say, well, I don't label myself? You know, I'm not a modalist, I'm not a Trinitarian, I, I don't really get caught up in all the different names. How do you think we ought to respond? I think it's a very good example that we're actually happy to cover that. You know, it's an essential matter to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And then pull the, you know, I don't like to label myself kind of card, you know, mm-hmm. go forth and say, well, you know, part of Christianity is there's certain non negotiable truths. You know what I mean? There's some non essential things and there are some essential things. Mm-hmm. Sure. I have two, and um, again, sometimes people, what they see it is you're trying to put them in a particular ecclesiastical camp. And what I'm not trying to do there, but rather what I am trying to do is going, again, back to the scriptures. And Christ himself used labels. He said, you must be born again. So if I say I'm a Christian, that assumes I'm born again. And so I'd say that in itself, being born again is a label. Disciple is a label and it's used throughout the the entire well and throughout uh the bible itself and especially new testament um and then so we see you know it says go and make fishers admit you know stuff like that so we see even if jesus can use labels then i'm not i shouldn't be ashamed to use them um and so now i want us kind of to look quickly i want to just talk really about the effects of gospel apologetics. And then we're going to look at uh, Paul's defense. When the gospel is proclaimed to an unbeliever, unseen supernatural transactions take place. The truth of God's word penetrates the ears. This is found in Romans 10, 14. And then it enters the mind, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, invading the conscience. And we find that in Hebrews 4, 12. The Holy Spirit uses spiritual truth to pierce the very soul and spirit of the unbeliever stirring up guilt over sin known and hidden we find that in john 16 verses 8 through 11 so i would say regardless of the unbeliever's response god's word and his spirit have done their work a supernatural seed has been planted either in watered or cultivated we find that again in first corinthians 3 6 through nine, and God testifies this to this in Isaiah fifty-five eleven. So I would say, don't be afraid of looking silly or foolish. I mean, because we know the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So don't be ashamed to look foolish, but trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in His normative means by which He brings someone from the dead and brings them to life. And I would say the normative means is his very word. It's not being caught up in philosophy and all these things. It's his word. Trust his word. And even when you begin to doubt, trust his word even more than your own you know, thinking. And so now I want us to look. We're going to be kind of going through again Acts 22. We're going to be going rather quickly because of time. And so now I want to address kind of who Paul's speaking to in his general audience. Because as we know, as you continue through the book of Acts, he doesn't speak just to one particular group. And so apologia more often refers to a Christian presenting the gospel 
as opposed to the presentation of a secular legal brief. When Paul gave the presentation of the gospel, it was at the heart of his presentation. We find this in Acts 22. Paul literally gave his defense to the Jews of Israel. We find this uh, in 22.1. He was not in a court before pagan atheists. His content incorporated his salvation experience. You find this in 22, 1 through 16. It in revealed divine revelation, 22, 7, 17. And it climaxed as he spoke his belief in the risen Christ. We find that in Acts 22, 8. So in the face of skeptics, Paul did not give the cosmological argument or resort to the laws of logic or try to establish the probability of God's existence. Rather, he preached the life-changing gospel of Christ. And I would say that if you're a Christian, you can too. Don't be afraid. And so I would say as we continue in the book of Acts, now going to Acts 23, verse 6, we see Paul giving his defense again, and this time to the Sanhedrin. And in his defense, he culminated with the statement, I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And then several days later, we find him giving another defense before Felix. And so Paul begins, I cheerfully, in, in Acts 24.10, he says, I cheerfully make my defense. And then with that, when, I, when we're making our defense to an unbelieving world and to those within the church, can we, like Paul, say, I cheerfully make my defense? Or have we been driven by guilt to make it? Can we say, like Paul, I cheerfully want to make the truth of Christ known? What was Paul's defense? What was his apologetic argument before Felix, the pagan Roman governor? Was it, again, the ontological or teleological or moral or transcendental argument? Did he try to find neutral ground in empirical data and sense perception? Did he use man-made natural theology devoid of divine revelation? And my answer to that is no. He claims he worshiped God in Jerusalem. You find that in Acts 24.11. He claimed to believe in the scriptures, Acts 24.14. And his hope was in the resurrection, Acts 24.15. And as you can kind of see that as you're progressing through it. And his main point is faith in Christ Jesus, Acts 24.24. 24. His entire apologetic presentation evolved around the gospel of Christ from personal experience. And then we see this again in Acts 25.8 before Festus. And here he says, declaring having been faithful to the Old Testament scriptures, he relayed to Festus his faith in the resurrected Christ, 25.19. And he presents another presentation, another defense to Festus here. And then here is we and as we continue Acts 26 6 King Agrippa hears Paul's story Paul referring back to the promise made by God in Acts 26 6 and so Paul literally here we, he begs them to hear and you might say he stretches forth in his hand in, in almost preaching fashion 
if you start with Acts 26, going through 1 through 3. It's kind of, he's prepared to preach, give a defense for the gospel. And Paul ends his defense with pleading with Agrippa, calling him to repentance and belief in the gospel. So let us look quickly at Acts 26, verses 27 through 29. I'm going to read this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, wait, I'm sorry. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these trains. And so what do we see in verses, you know, really in 27? He says, I know that you believe. And in 29, he's pleading with him to repent and to believe the gospel. And so my question with this is, how do you know if you're doing apologetics biblically or in a way that honors God? You know, they're all different methods. We've kind of gone over them. Um, There's going to be maybe some truth out of each camp that can be applied. How do you know if you're doing it in such a way that honors God. Go ahead. I think your presentation will end with a call to repentance. Okay. A call to faith in Christ. I don't, um, I don't always do this, but I, I think it should. You should make your case to the point where you're calling that person to make a decision. Hey, repent, trust the gospel, or not. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, and that's, that's where you kind of leave it. You get to that point, and then it's kind of on them. If you've done all you can do, you've presented all the Go ahead. Well, Jason, were you going to talk about verse 28 at all? Uh, just because uh, if you are, I won't steal your thunder. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm... Okay, well, I just thought it was kind of striking that, you know, kind of like what you've been teaching us about going on the offense sometimes. Mm-hmm. He says, I know you believe. Right. You know, and then look what the reaction of Agrippa is like, wow, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. Right. You know, so <laughs> it's almost like some people, that's all they need is for you to call them on their, you know, call, you know, call them out, you know? Sure. I'm not here to prove you God exists because you already know God exists. Mm-hmm. You know, and people they're just not used to hearing that. You know? Right. Hearing, <laughs> Paul oh, says it. <laughs> you know, did you see what you know? You know, we've we've dug up some bricks in Jerusalem and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not used to people coming so forcefully with, you know, exposing the hidden motives of their heart. Sure. You know, so when that happens, almost like a grip like caught by surprise. Like, wow. And I think with that, you know, I think in in some way. It kind of encourages me because here he's telling Paul, who to me, uh, I think aside from Christ, obviously, would be the greatest apologist. If he was unable to persuade him, you know, that should be like, you know, and and I don't say if Paul can't, you know, can't even do it, then, you know, I shouldn't be a fearful to get out there. And I think the reality is, is that Paul is telling them the gospel message and not everybody hears it is going to be saved. And so I'm trusting in the sovereign act of God to in working with his message to get it out there. And so I don't have to be fearful, maybe again, going back to, you know, I, they're, if they're going to be persuaded, it's not going to be my best argument, 
right? They're going to be persuaded by a work of God. And so I look to Paul, and that's what I see. I see God had not regenerated this king yet. And he may or may not have laid, I don't know. But what I'm saying is, you know, he's, this guy's saying, you haven't, you know, are you trying to persuade me? So in a sense, if someone says, are, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Well, in, in reality, yes. And I'm doing so by the truthfulness of the gospel. And so I don't want to be ashamed, you know. Are you just trying to tell me about the exit? Maybe there's a God. No, I'm trying to persuade you to be a Christian. And I'm not ashamed to do it. Go ahead, Wally. Well, I was reading the other day in Acts 13, 46, where Paul and Barnabas were speaking to people. You know, and Paul says, since you've judged yourself not worthy, you know, we're turning to the Gentiles. So it's just, you know, since you spoke out boldly, saying it is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like there comes a time when it's like, okay, you've decided you're not worthy to be saved. I'm not going to waste any more time. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a time in which we do wipe the feet off, the, you know, our shoes. Um, how long should we be, you know, engaged with an unbeliever about the truth of the gospel? Uh, it might be relative to the, to the situation, how often you see them, who they are, and so forth. And I think that's going to take some discernment. Uh, whether I, I don't want to give a concrete answer, you get two days or two years yeah. or whatever. I, I think that should you should go to God in prayer about that. Um, real quickly, um, before we get because of time, I just I really I want to talk about something real quick, and then we'll have a a, a little bit of time just for some questions because I want to emphasize this a lot, and that is that apologetics is an action. I believe it should be an action taken by every Christian. And some people, I think, believe that it's an office. You know, they say, well, so-and-so is the apologist, and therefore he's the go-to person. Or I think, really, it's not an office. And so I'd say apologetics is something we do. It's not so much what a person is. When Peter commands Christians to always be ready to make a defense, he was giving them a practice to follow, not a position to be filled. In Philippians, Paul reminded his readers that he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. Philippians 1.16. Defending the gospel was an action he performed, not an office he filled. And the notion of a select group of men being apologists while other Christians are not, to me, is a misnomer. Do you have... Well, oh, okay. Good. I think that's good a passage out of Philippians because in Philippians chapter 1, he actually says that that same thing that happened to him rubbed off on other people. Sure. You know what I mean? So that the majority of the brothers, you know, in Rome had to come and mold him. Right. To also speak the word of God, you know, without without fear. So yeah, that's good. And that kind of leads us really to the first question, really, with that being said, what are some ways in which you might help someone who is new to the task of apologetics and say a one to one situation? Let's say you're well equipped with the verses and all that. You're going out with someone and they're new to it. And they're nervous. But you want to help equip them. What are some ways in which you can do that? Tell them to come to your Sunday school class. <laughs> <laughs> if you're out on the street. <laughs>
more specifically, I, I would say pop, possibly focus on like one gospel. Try to learn the ins and outs of one, because there's a lot of information in the Bible. And if you, mm-hmm. Sometimes if you're a new Christian, I guess that's what you're saying with a new Christian, you kind of get kind of overwhelmed. Man, I'm going to learn this whole book, and that guy seems to know it so well. But if you just have them focus on Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of you know, Matthew or Mark, whatever, one gospel, and, and then the book of Romans, that's a little bit easier to digest. And from there, you got you got a springboard to go to a lot of other things. You might not be able to name the passage, mm-hmm. but you might be able to say, I remember my Bible says something about this. One thing, even if they're not a new Christian, let's say they're been very faithful for many years, they're just maybe a little bit timid on the streets, and so they're not used to talking about the defense of the gospel. So how do we help equip them? One thing that I've kind of done, really, in, in evangelism, if I'm trying to maybe train or help someone, is I might start the dialogue, right? I might start with that defense, and then I would turn to them directly, and then I would say, well, what do you think? Now, obviously, ahead of time, I'd, I'd already, you know, talk with them to make sure that, you know, they're well-equipped to answer, but I kind of then directly and say, what do you think about the resurrection? Who do you think Christ is? Because it's going to be very important. And then they get a turn kind of to then tell the answer to this person. And so they're not so much, you know, unready when that person is asking them. I'm kind of asking them right there. They trust me. And so they get it, they get kind of equipped and, they, and they're prepared, you know, in event to start talking about it. And then if maybe gears off, you can kind of redirect it back to, uh, again, Christ. I think the simplicity, too, of just focusing on ministries that, like the way of the master, kind of simplified it to the fact of, you know, the law, the proud, and the grace of the humble. And mm-hmm. really, you know, I, I think it worked with them on the simplicity of using the law as a mirror and then presenting an answer for things. And I think that's really helped someone get over the fear of having to know so much and reference so much and is debating, you know, different doctrines and things sure. like that to start with. So. I would say that you can't equip somebody in a couple of minutes. That's where sure. discipleship comes in. Right. It's supposed to be time spent, time taught, life on life type teaching and, and going over. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the ways when you're kind of people kind of want to role play ahead of time and then they don't like role play so to me it's help you know when you just ask them some basic question maybe two or three questions get them in that habit of just answering some basic truths first and then they can kind of on their own study more and then say hey I, I, I was able to answer these basic truths maybe I can move on and so with that real quickly uh, this may be more of a controversial question but uh, but here it is in are there any weak areas in the issue of polemics or presuppositional apologetics? Now, that being said, it's kind of reflecting back on to what John was saying earlier. And polemics, real quickly, is the refuting of errors. And typically, what I've seen sometimes in the realm of presuppositionalism, we begin to start to refute their errors. You know, how do you account for this? How do you account for this? You know, on and on and on. And then we say, well, the, how we can account for it is Christ and so forth. And so there, and, and that's a great part of the task of apologetics, refuting errors. But to me, like in evangelism, if you just preach the law and you don't direct it back to grace and Christ, then you've only done half the battle. And so refuting errors to me is only half the battle. If you don't refute the error and then direct them back to Christ, 
you're only doing half the battle. And you've kind of left them without any hope. If you've shown them their error, and that's like, well, where do you go then? They've seen their error, but if you just say, have a nice day, think on that. Uh, wow, that, to me, that's not very loving. Um, and then maybe one more question. Now that we've looked at internal apologetics, my question would be, should we just address errors by themselves? Or should we include the names of people that teach these errors? For example, if I'm going to teach against the error of open theism, right? I can tell you what it is and why I believe the Bible, you know, stands against that idea. But then should I say, this guy is the one that you are, I'm warning you about because he teaches this. Uh, did, go ahead, John. I was going to say, yeah, the Bible names names, but we got to name names. Unless you want, I mean, you don't want to assume they know who that person is. I mean, it would want to be relative to the conversation. Sure. If that person brings that individual up, then I think it's relative to the conversation. I think throwing names out there prematurely without maybe doing a few more questions might just lead to more confusion. And not, you sure, know, I agree with you. Yeah. But, but, you know, like with that, if you're talking to somebody, because around here it's going to be popular, like this is a word of faith teacher. Uh-huh. And if, you, if you're talking and you, find, and you, you, know, you find out, hey, this is a word of faith person, and then you're talking to them and you continue to talk to them, if you throw out the, the name T.D. Jakes, if you throw out um, the dude over in Copeland, Kenneth Copeland, or some of the smaller, lesser-named guys, and, and, and you refute what, that, what they're saying um, and you name them, I, I don't... I don't see it. I don't have a problem with that. I'm probably going to make the person mad, especially if they go to that particular church. But I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's the correct thing to do. To me, it's it, you know, if and I've used names and in other times I have it. For example, if I say this guy's name, right, and then, and sometimes the response, real quick response, very defensive, is why are you touching God's anointed? And so, how I would address that is, well, let me ask you this. How would you affirm that either A, this person is God's anointed versus either me or someone else? How do we make that claim? What are they standing on for us to determine if there is today a God's anointed and so forth? So I think it's important first, like you know what you were saying, Scott, try and address the issue first. And then if you think that they're caught up in a particular church or whatever it is, then you can say, well, this is what he teaches Rather, because what happened, they may say, well, you just, you don't like him because of this. You know, he's prosperous and you're not. And therefore, you're just jealous and you're judging him. Judge not. All right. That quickly happens a lot. Did you have a question? Go ahead. Well, yeah, it kind of depends on the person you're talking to. Too, sure. Because I've, I've seen a sheep in, in one of those congregations. Mm-hmm. I've encountered them. And then, you know, I don't want to scare that person away from Christ, too. Right. But then at the same time, I've encountered the, like, leaders of, of several Mm-hmm. Uh, here, like at Starbucks, I heard them talking, so I went up and started speaking to them and said, hey, what do you believe about the Trinity? And they got mad and started you know, doing that. But at the same time, I've had friends caught in those churches mm-hmm. that I'm trying to warn sure. trying to get them out maybe to a better church. And, and so it goes both ways. I scare them away I, by mistake sometimes too. You know? yeah. So you've got to be careful. It's a fine line. Yeah, I think, um, as, as I said earlier, we just got to use a lot of discernment um, you know, says there's wisdom in the council of multitude. You know, maybe partner with your leaders of the church, tell them your situation and how you can be edified and how you might go about doing it better. Um, we're out of time. So.
Uh, I'll just pr you want to pray for us, John? Sure. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, just a lovely Sunday. Lord, we thank Jason for teaching the class. Lord, we appreciate the information. Lord, let us internalize it. Let us use it. Uh, let us let this information make us useful and fit for your kingdom. Lord, we're just asking that uh, you would bless us as we go into our worship service. Continue to worship uh, in there. Lord, bless our brother Chris as he's bringing the message today. And Lord, bless our fellowship afterwards. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we bless your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.